0: Last week in Jonah chapter 3, we watched as the incredible spiritual awakening of the nation of, uh, of the city of Nineveh unfolded before our eyes through the simple obedience of the revived prophet, spokesman for God. And I suggested to you that this national awakening occurred in five stages. Number one, the grace of God comes. Number two, the word of God calls. Number three, the man or woman of God goes. Number four, the work of God happens. And then number five, the will of God reigns. That was chapter three in a nutshell. And I summarized the principal lesson of that chapter this way, that when the people of God do the will of God, the fruit of God brings the glory of God. Amen? The obvious personal application here then was that you and I should make it our aim to honor God's grace, answer God's call, obey God's word, watch God work, and then rejoice in His will. When God pours out his sovereign grace and people repent of their personal sins, the gift of salvation comes to the heart of individuals, families, and even entire nations, as we've seen here in the book of Jonah. And a glorious celebration occurs after that. Or does it? What if it doesn't? Now, there are two primary places in the Bible that come to my mind, that always come to my mind, where that celebration is not the case. One is here, Jonah chapter 4. The other is in the New Testament, which we've referred to over this series a number of times. And although it is most commonly known as the prodigal son, parable of the prodigal son, a better title might be, The parable of the two lost sons. Turn your Bibles, hold your finger in Jonah 4 and turn uh, turn your Bibles to the New Testament in Luke chapter 15 for a moment. I'm not going to read down through this parable. But Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32 is what uh, contains this parable. Uh, Basic summary is... uh, Man had two sons, one of the younger son gets up one day and he says, I want my inheritance, which in essence says, I wish you were dead, give me my money. (laughs) And then uh, the father does so and he takes off out into the world and basically parties hardy. And he gets to the place where he's come to the end of his resources and the end of himself and he realizes by the grace of God that he's in a bad way. And the world's not doing him any good. And the scripture says he comes to his senses and he realizes that when he was back with his father, that's where it was really good. And so he basically changes his mind and turns around and changes his directions, which is the identification of repentance. And he goes back to his father, says that he, he's, he just, before he gets the words out of his mouth, his father welcomes him home. And there's a great celebration. Let's pick it up here in verse 25. Luke 15, 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him, But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours has devoured all your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Great ending. Or was it? Notice the contrast here. The sinning son came to the father, but the father had to go out to the self-righteous son. The younger brother was so low that the only place he could go was up, but the elder brother had to be taken down a peg. He needed repentance just as much as the younger son did. But he didn't see it. He was oblivious to his own depraved heart. Jesus addressed the older brother's arrogant, self-righteous mindset on yet another occasion with some very sharp words to some Pharisees. In John chapter 9, in verses 40 to 41, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. What happens when the grace of God brings the anger of man? Because that's what's happening inside of Jonah as we encounter him in chapter 4. And you can turn back there now. It's the same thing that's happening with the older brother in Jesus' parable. And I would challenge you, as well as myself, that it may even characterize us at times. Probably more often than we imagine. If we're honest and brave enough to admit it, we probably know or have experienced what Jonah feels. For instance, throughout history, even within Christendom, there has often been an underlying thread of anti-Semitism. Although Christianity is not itself anti-Jew, it has often been lured into guilty associations with it. I've been in, contem- in the company of Christians who have looked down their noses at the Jews with an attitude that almost says the kingdom of God now belongs to us. You have no part in it. Is that correct? I would strongly urge them to revisit Romans chapters 9 through 11 and read them. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts a little flesh and blood on this somewhat abstract, though profound, very profound, thought. In Jesus' parable, in Luke 15, Tom Wright writes, In Jesus' original story, the prodigal son represents the outcasts whom Jesus was welcoming into the kingdom, and the older brother represented the Pharisees and the scribes who grumbled at this scandalous behavior. But in Luke's retelling of the parable, there is perhaps another level of meaning. This time, the prodigal is the pagan world welcomed into the kingdom through the church's Gentile mission, and the older brother is the Jewish people who are at the moment refusing to join in the party. What the story then says is that the Gentile Christians are like the younger brother welcomed home by the father in an astonishing act of grace, with new clothes, new shoes, and a huge banquet. Those who were partying with the pagans a year ago and pigging it out on the farm a week ago are now welcomed in as long-lost children. But what about the elder brother? What attitude should the younger brother have have towards him different twist in the parable the father tries to persuade the older brother to come in and join the party and we aren't told whether the appeal was successful it's an unresolved story in Jesus's day it mostly wasn't successful in Luke's day it mostly wasn't successful so how might the story go Tom Wright says, if we were to bring it down throughout history and up to date, and we need to increase the size of the family, he says, a little to see the range of options. So this is his way of doing that. Once upon a time, there was a man with five children. The oldest stayed at home and worked hard, while the other four, two boys and two girls, went off with as much loot as they could. They lived it up, went bust, and came home with their tails between their legs. And the father welcomed them all back with amazing generosity. And he gave them a party while the elder brother sulked outside. The morning after, the four younger ones got together over a pot of black coffee to talk it through. What are we going to do about Judah? Said the first, whose name was Constantine. He was so snooty last night, stalked off with his nose in the air as though we were something the cat had brought in. He made me so mad, why don't we all just get together and beat him up and teach him a lesson? Hey, steady on, said the second, who was called Portia. He is our brother, after all. I've got a better idea. Let's have a wild party again tonight, and we'll pick him up and drag him in by force and make him enjoy himself. (laughs) Oh, I don't know, said the third, whose name was Enlightenment. I think he's so different from us. It would be better to leave him alone entirely. He can go his way and we can go our way. It would be very arrogant of us to attempt to say anything to him or even about him if we just ignore him. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Ignore him, said the fourth, whose name was Pauline. Look, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so sad when Judah went out and I can quite understand why he did. It was as though part of me went with him. I don't think we'll feel like a proper family again until he comes back. But he'll have to come back in his own way and in his own time. We certainly can't put pressure on him. We mustn't project our own guilt on him. But what we can do, perhaps, is to try to live here in such a way that he'll want to come back. We can hold the sort of party that he would enjoy. We can let him know how sorry we are and make it clear that he's really welcome here, that we really do want him back. And I'll tell you something else. Perhaps we should ask Father to have another go at persuading him. That's probably the best way of all. Interesting take. But the final line is the real clincher for me. Perhaps we should ask Father to have another go at persuading him. Because that's probably the best way of all. And that's exactly what God does here in Jonah chapter 4. He doesn't give up on Jonah. But he comes after Jonah. Because God is a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. Look with me at Jonah chapter 4. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds and their repentance, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason? To be angry. And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. The Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about that plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? And he said, I've got good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. And then Jonas and the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight, and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Now, Wouldn't it have been great if the book of Jonah ended on the high note of chapter 3, verse 10? Nineveh repents, and they turn to God. Yay, close the book, done, over. Seriously, wouldn't you have ended it there? Most of us love happy endings, don't we? We crave happy endings. The Hallmark Channel has made an industry about happy endings. No one really likes an ending that goes unresolved. A movie I recently went to ended like that, unresolved. All the bad guys won. They left it kind of hanging there, and what's going to happen? All the heroes uh, pretty much died off, and I walked out of that theater ticked off. (laughs) Why did I even bother to spend my time and my money on a movie like that? (laughs) Like Jesus' parable in Luke 15, we come to the ending of Jonah and the story doesn't resolve. It doesn't resolve well. Jonah's still pouting at the end of the story and we don't ever hear what becomes of him. He is the elder brother. And the book ends with a looming unanswered question. Shouldn't I have... Compassion on a city like Nineveh, which all kinds of innocent people are perishing, and even the animals. Actually, it's the second of two questions God asks in this final segment, which revolve around Jonah's attitude and reveal his troubled heart. And both questions are designed to bring out one poignant and very unavoidable truth about our mission to preach the good news of God's amazing grace. That God wants us to obey his call, but more than that, he wants us to adopt his heart. Jonah finally answered God's call all right in chapter 3, but he did it reluctantly. But the fact that Jonah was sitting there having a pity party about the way God worked and and, and who God decides to save reveals that his heart is not really right after all. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that raises all sorts of questions in our minds, doesn't it? First of all, can a Christian obey God while harboring a bad attitude about his mission? Can a Christian do the right thing for the wrong reasons and still be blessed? I'm not going to give you the answer to those questions. Because as we move through this text over today and the next week... I believe that those conundrums will all be addressed. The fact is, as Sinclair Ferguson admits, that life is full of contradictions and Jonah is a mess of contradictions, just like we are. And I said in the opening message, it will be no surprise to find out by the end of this book that we are Jonah, full of contrasts. But God, as we will continue to see, does not give up on Jonah. Moreover, he will never give up on you or me either. That is the pearl of inestimable value that we discover in this book. Look at the contrasts contained in the immediate context that I just read. When the people heard God's message... Nineveh repented. When God saw what they did, God relented. And when Jonah saw what God did, Jonah resented. So Nineveh repented, God relented, Jonah resented. Jonah's angry reaction to the outpouring of God's amazing grace on the Ninevites exhibits for us the marks of a heart that is not on board with God fully. And the first of which is this. It's the release of misplaced passion. The release of misplaced passion. Look at verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You would think that Jonah would be overjoyed at the repentance of a nation. What prophet or preacher or evangelist, what Christ follower, would not be thrilled with such a response to a message? The whole nation comes to God. But not Jonah. He's upset. No, wait. He's not just upset. He's hot. He's burning in anger. That's what the phrase became angry means in the original language. It means in Hebrew to heat oneself with extreme vexation. This guy was boiling mad. He sees the grace and the forgiveness God shows to Nineveh at their repentance as a huge evil. Again, that's what the literal translation of the phrase greatly displeased means in the original. God's great grace to Nineveh was viewed by Jonah as a great evil. Can you imagine? Talk about misplaced passion. The whole thing is one grievously bad turn of events to Jonah. He's completely busted up by it. What's ironic about it is that Jonah was perfectly fine when he received God's grace in the belly of the great fish, but he could not deal with it when God showed it to Nineveh. Does that strike a chord with you? Well, I would suggest that we look at our own hearts as well. Author James Edwards asks this penetrating question of us in his book, The Divine Intruder. He says, now get this, think about this one. Suppose you were to die tonight and go to heaven, would there be anyone you would be grieved to see there? The spouse who betrayed you? The unscrupulous real estate agent who defrauded you? The debtor who refused to pay up? You think about that. Listen, friends, don't quickly dismiss Jonah's reaction and tirade against God's grace. Is Jonah alone in this kind of attitude? For many whose heart is not right with God, the reality of grace is the most offensive part of the gospel. What's happening here is what Sinclair Ferguson identified as spiritual infantile regression. You like that? Spiritual infantile regression. Write that down in your notes. Next time your kid goes throwing a tantrum on the floor, that's what it is. In other words, Jonah's pitching an adult-sized temper tantrum. Spiritual infantile regression. Jonah wants his way. He realizes, however, that he cannot control God. Because God's too big to control, isn't he? He was well aware what kind of God God was and is. Gracious, kind, long-suffering, and loving. But when it came to these hateful Ninevites, he didn't like that fact. He wanted all the gracious attributes of God for himself. But not for those people, not for those sinners who are way worse than I am. Right? He wanted God, and he wanted God only on his terms and according to his prescription. And so he goes out and he pouts. But then he does something else, something completely unexpected. He prays. Good for you, Jonah. You did the right thing. However, there's a downside. The downside is it's a pretty self-serving prayer. And that's the next mark of a heart that is not quite right with God. The response of misguided prayer. Look at verses 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? For in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. This is the second time Jonah prays in this book, but it had a completely different feel and a completely different flavor than the first prayer. This prayer, its intent and its content were totally out of place here. This prayer is of a far different nature than the prayer that he prayed in the belly of the fish when it was his life that was hanging in the balance. You compare the two this week on your own time. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says he prayed his best prayer in the worst place, the fish's belly. And he prayed his worst prayer in the best place at Nineveh where God was actually working. His first prayer came from a broken heart, but his second prayer came from an angry heart. His first prayer, he asked God to save him, but in his second prayer, he asked God to take his life. Once again, Jonah would rather die than not have his own way. Let's look again how misguided this prayer actually was. First of all, he engages in personal rationalization. You mark these things and check your prayer life and see sometimes if you pray this way. First of all, the prayer seems to be all about Jonah, all about Jonah. Notice the focus here. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Therefore, now please take my life from me, because death is better to me than life. I, I, my, I, I, my, me, me. Circle them. He's trying to justify his previous sin of running to Tarshish, and now he wishes he were dead. It's a totally self-centered prayer. Can you pick up the self-justification here in Jonah's words? He's not sorry for anything except God's gracious forgiveness on the Ninevites. He hates that. He's basically throwing God's word right back at God and quoting scripture back to God in order to justify his bad attitude. And as one pastor noted, that's a very dangerous place to be. In essence, what he's saying is God, you told me to go preach judgment, and now you're not going to judge them. I look like an idiot, I look like a false prophet. And not only that, but I knew it would happen. I knew it because of who you are according to what you said to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. Just kill me now, God, because that would be better for me. See the rationalization? He's trying to justify his fleeing to Tarshish. He's not sorry for it. He's rationalizing it. Secondly, he employs a theological recitation in the prayer. Verse 2, again at the end. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. He's quoting scripture back to God. Exodus 34, 6 says this, that the Lord passed by in front of him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, quote, the Lord's words. The Lord, the Lord God, Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Jonah recites the ancient Orthodox formula for God. Every Jew knew those were words spoken by God to Moses as his glory passed. Before him, they were burned into the forefront of every Jew's mind and consciousness, and often repeated in the Psalms and in the prophets. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. And then in the minor prophet Joel, in chapter 2, verse 13, Joel says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger Abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's exactly what Nineveh did. They returned to him. A return to God and a rending of the heart is exactly what Jonah should be doing right now, right? As they applied to him in the belly of the fish, these words were desirable. But as they applied to the Ninevites, they were distasteful to Jonah. He hates what these words say. Jonah is actually finding fault with God and the way that God deals with other people who sin. He admits that he is El Kanun, a God supremely compassionate. But he despises the fact that he is a God, that kind of God to the Ninevites. It's a double standard. And as one writer put it, instead of taking God as he is, Jonah would rather remake God in Jonah's image. How convicting is that? Don't we often feel the same way? How do you think God should deal, for instance, with radical Muslim terrorists. How do you think He should deal with them? Radical Muslim terrorists who come to Christ, or your hateful neighbor who constantly irritates you, how do you think God should deal with them when they come to Christ? Can you feel the press of the Holy Spirit's finger on your sternum? Someone once said, You can tell you've made God in your image when it turns out that He hates all the same people you do. (laughs) That's a convicting statement. We will struggle with this issue. We will struggle with this issue of sovereign grace, of the sovereign grace of God and its seeming injustice. It was the struggle of the prophet Jeremiah, as a matter of fact. Jeremiah chapter 12, first couple of verses there. Listen to Jeremiah's words Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of carnage. You see, Jeremiah even dealt with this struggle. It's a struggle which meanders its way throughout the Bible, all the way into the heart of the older brother in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. And as one writer poses the real question who is God after all? Is Jonah God? Or is God God? We may indeed extend that question to ourselves. And we, right alongside of Jonah and the older brother, will be faced with God's answer as well. You know what God says? This is what God says in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, quoting Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In Romans chapter 2, is if that's not convicting enough, is even more convicting. In Romans chapter 2, in the first few verses there, Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here's a good one. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God should lead us to repentance. It wasn't leading Jonah to repentance. He's thinking, judging from Jonah's attitude here, he's thinking himself to be more justified than ever. And this brings out something and explains something I didn't bring out in Jonah's prayer way back in chapter 3. If you look at that prayer again, one thing that I didn't bring out when I preached on that that you will find is that Jonah not once ever does he confess his sin in that prayer. No confession that he's running away from God, that he was wrong. It seems that Jonah always felt completely justified in sidestepping God's assignment. And judging from Jonah's attitude in prayer in chapter 4 here, it's not changed. In fact, it almost seems that he'd do it all over again had he known the outcome that was going to be God's gracious mercy on Nineveh. Sure, he went to Nineveh. And he preached what God told him to preach. But in his heart, I think still secretly, he'd hoped that God would judge them. He didn't think they were going to repent. Jonah wasn't on board with God's plan, not even close. And that brings up a very scary but significant thought to me in the words of Alistair Begg. We may go where he wants us to go. We may say what he wants us to say and still not be in harmony with God's unfolding plan. So when it comes to doing God's will, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Every single time. The Lord's not looking for feigned obedience. Yes, He wants us to obey His call, but more than that, He wants us to adopt His heart. Because why? Because God's not like we are, simply looking at the outward appearance, He looks at the heart according to 1 Samuel 16, 7. And he weighs our motives, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And only God can do that. We can't do that with each other. Only God can do that. But here's the most pressing, clear, and present danger for every professing Christian on the planet. We can become indifferent to the true nature of our hearts. As the famed Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane confessed... He said, the seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. Like the older brother in the parable, Jonah's not seeing them here. And he does the third thing in this prayer that indicates that his heart's not right. He exhibits irrational desperation. Look at verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life now i read this verse you read this verse and you got to think what could possibly bring a christian to this point how could someone who had seen the power of god so vividly and co- come to these kinds of desires You know, in 1 Kings chapter 19, and verse 2, the prophet Elijah, through fatigue and fear, went into a state of depression and declared similar words to Jonah. The only difference here, though, is that Jonah had an entirely different reason for saying those words than Elijah did. Jonah's at odds with God here. Elijah was seeking God. Jonah's miserable. He's arguing with God and he's ripping mad. And Sinclair Ferguson, again, honest observation on this point is kind of scary when he says this. He says it's apparently possible to be present to witness the blessing of God's falling in great power and to long to be elsewhere or better nowhere. But as the rest of the chapter unfolds in the aftermath of Jonah's tirade, we will find that the glorious truth of the gospel of God's grace is still at work in his life. Because although Jonah may have wanted to give up on God, God was unwilling to give up on Jonah. Because God is a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. And that is something that we can hold on to. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13 says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a great verse, isn't it? In the face of Jonah's irrational desperation, God's sovereign grace rears its beautiful head and shows us once again that he's not finished with Jonah yet. He gently begins drawing Jonah to the point of conviction. He's not coming down hard on Jonah. There's no harsh words of rebuke here. No hard hand of punishment here. He simply asks the first of two very probing questions. In verse 4, the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? And that's the third thing that happens when our heart's not right with God, that God hopefully will come to us and give us the revelation of a mistaken perspective. What God's saying to Jonah here is, "Jonah, is this reasonable? Is your attitude reasonable right now? The way you feel about that person, the way you feel about those people, is it reasonable?" Is it reasonable in light of who you are as a sinner? Is it reasonable in light of who I am as a gracious savior? Jonah, is this a reasonable attitude? God's pretty good at asking the questions, isn't he? He has a knack for asking questions that he already has the answers to. This is the first time that God speaks in this chapter. And he does it with unbelievable compassion. He's slow to anger and he's abundant in loving kindness. This is God and only God. It's certainly not me. Priscilla Shirer notes that the divine inquiries are never for God's benefit. Do you ever notice that when God asks a question or Jesus asks a question in the New Testament? It's never for their benefit. Because they know the answer to every question. God poses questions that we may realize and agree on the truth of the answer. He's drawing Jonah out, he's he's bringing him to a place where what's in his heart would finally come forth from his lips. And then God can work with that. But we find right here, Jonah's not talking. As you go on in the text, you find out that Jonah's anger is still so inflamed that he doesn't even respond to God's question yet. He goes silent. He doesn't speak again. Jonah doesn't speak again until verses 8 and 9, where he finally answers God and again begs to die. What's rooted deep in Jonah's heart comes spewing out finally. And the sad thing is he's lost sight of God. You know what he did? He left his first love. The fire in his heart that once burned for God as a prophet of God now burns only for himself. And that makes him a slave. He's not free, he's a slave to his own sin. This is a story told from Civil War days before America's slaves were freed about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and he told her, he said, you're free. And with amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yeah, anything. Anything. And to be whatever I want to be. Yep. Even go where I want to go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You are free to go wherever you like. And she looked at him intensely. And she replied, Then I will go with you. My friends, Jesus has come to the slave market He came to us there because we could not go to him. He came and he purchased us with his blood so that we would no longer be a slave to our sin or a slave to ourself, but a slave to Christ, which is the essence of freedom. And now there's no freer place to be in life than going with Jesus with the one who is himself, our true liberty. The real question here that we'll see next time is that will Jonah be willing to go with God? Will Jonah be willing to die to himself? And it begs the question, will we? Because the issue which faced him and faces us as well is well expressed in these anonymous words as I close. The last enemy to be destroyed in the believer is self. It dies hard. It will will make any concessions if only it is allowed to live. Self will permit the believer to do anything, give anything, sacrifice anything, suffer anything, go anywhere, take any liberties, bear any crosses, afflict soul and body to any degree, anything, if it can only live. It will consent to live in a hovel, In a garret, in the slums, in faraway heathendom, if only its life can be spared. In Jonah's case, as in the case of the older brother, this was the heart of the matter. It's always the heart of the matter. It's always a matter of my heart and yours. How is yours? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ... Son of the living God, you are slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, full of grace and truth, long-suffering. You've purchased us from an incredible slave market. May it be our choice, Lord God, as you give us freedom to spend that freedom serving and following you. In all that we do and say. For the sake of your kingdom. And for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.